Today's episode with dietitian Cynthia Sass is incredible. Uh, we're going to talk about how to manage emotional eating, meditation, optimal daily routines for eating, uh, plant-based nutrition versus veganism. Uh, we're going to separate the difference between mind hunger versus body hunger, uh, how to respond to shame and guilt, how to reduce fatigue and improve sleep, meditation. We are going to uncover the myths. Myth, I can't, I can never say that word, myths and misinformation about protein. Oh, that's my favorite part. Uh, amino acid pulling. Have you heard of that? B12, do you need it? Do you need to supplement it? Do you need to take any supplements? And uh, how to, and we get into frozen foods versus fresh foods. Are, are frozen foods just as healthy as fresh foods? Uh-oh, you got to listen to find out. Uh, and then we get into the Blue Zone diets. And most importantly, does vitamin C fight off colds? Huh? Does it? I want to know. And then uh, at the very uh, end, Cynthia shares a, a very uh, deep, heartwarm uh, message uh, that you, you want to tune in from beginning to end. It's packed with so much information. Uh, I learned so much and took a lot of notes. Um, and if you haven't, go to thrivewithleo.com. Go check that out. If you want to turn your traumas and your tragedies into an upward trajectory, go to thrivewithleo.com. And because, uh, you know, I've been there and I'm still there and I'm still in and out of it. And, you know, the sandstorms, don't stop, but I've acquired some coping skills and, and learned how to self-soothe, and I'd love to share those with you and also to personalize it to whatever you're going through. So go to thrivewithleo.com, and let's get to tomorrow together. With that said, let's get into the episode. Today's guest is Cynthia Sass. She is a registered dietitian, board-certified specialist in sports dietetics, and plant-based performance nutritionist in private practice in Los Angeles. Sass has consulted for five professional sports teams and has privately counseled Oscar, Grammy, and Emmy winners, CEOs, and pro athletes in numerous sports. Sass has earned her bachelor's and master's degrees in nutrition science and from Syracuse University, in addition to a master's degree in public health from the University of South Florida. She also has formal training in plant-based culinary arts and mindfulness meditation. A three-time New York Times best-selling author, Sass is a frequent writer and media expert. She is currently the contributing nutrition editor for Health Magazine. Welcome to the podcast, Cynthia Sass. Thanks, Leo. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being on. I'm super excited to have you on, especially now during this quarantine and uh, people are gaining weight. All my friends, <laughs> I, I, I'm FaceTiming with my friends, and there's there's a good five to ten extra pounds on them. I, I see them. Uh, I, I'm looking. I'm looking at their Instagram posts and what they're snacking on. I mean, I have some friends who are you know making healthy. Uh, uh, I guess healthy is not the word, but they're they're, st- they're staying on routine, I should say. And then yeah. some who are just falling off. I've heard people talk about the quarantine 15. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, is that what it's called? I didn't know that was a thing. 
It's a thing. I mean, I think number one, a lot of people are just wearing pajamas and sweatpants and very loose fitting clothes. There's also a lot of comfort food eating right now and stress eating and, you know, sort of, a, a you know, a little bit of a letting yourself go potential. But then, like you said, others have really stuck more to a consistent routine. And I do think that when it comes to trying to optimize your nutrition routine is the foundation of kind of staying with uh, balanced eating. Um, when you have constant access to food and you're, you know, sheltering in place, and maybe some people are even working out of their kitchens. I've heard of people setting up their offices from, you know, work at home offices in their kitchen. So they've got food within sight and within arm's reach. And, um, you know, kind of that constant snacking all day can really cause you to lose track of what you've eaten, how much you've eaten, sort of the balance of what you've eaten. So I think if someone's trying to be healthier right now, one of the best things that they can do is set up an eating routine in terms of the timing of your meals. So maybe eating breakfast within an hour of waking up and then eating your remaining meals spaced about three to five hours apart, even maybe setting your cell phone as an alarm to go off to remind you to stop and eat, and then really trying to stick to that and not snack or nibble in between those times. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought up snacking because, uh, you know, you read one article and they talk about how, you know, you should have three meals and three snacks. And then some say no snacking and some are like two meals. Like, is there I feel like there's a time and place for certain things. Like, what is the 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 overall rule for snacking versus not snacking? If that that I'm I'm so glad you brought this up because this is a perpetual topic of discussion in nutrition. I think, uh, you know, people have heard small, frequent meals. Other people have heard, you know, more about time restricted eating that being beneficial. So eating fewer meals, I really believe that number one, it is better from a digestive health standpoint and a nutrient utilization standpoint to eat, um, at least three or four meals a day, I think. Uh, as far as time restricted eating, yes, there's some preliminary and very good research about that. However, if you limit yourself to too narrow of an eating window, let's say you say, um, I'm going to fast 20 hours a day and I'm going to allow myself to eat within a four hour window. That's a very small window of a day, meaning you got to cram a lot of nutrition into a four hour window. That's hard on your digestive system. And it's really challenging to get all of the nutrients that you need in that short period of time. And as far as protein, specifically protein utilization, the research really shows that we are better able to use protein for maintenance, healing, and repair of protein tissues in the body when that protein is spaced out into about four evenly distributed meals. So when people want to do some sort of time-restricted eating, I think it's best to have your eating window be about 10 to 12 hours. So let's say that you ate, you know, you, you ate breakfast at 8 a.m. and you cut off your food for the night at either 6 p.m. or 8 p.m. That's still plenty of quote unquote fasting time, which gives you some of the benefits that the research is showing in terms of helping your immune system and you know, killing off cells that may be dysfunctional or damaged or old. Um, so you still get that benefit and you can still get potentially some weight loss benefit from it but you don't really have to overstress your digestive system. So I think that's number one. Within, let's say, that 10 to 12 hours a day that you do eat, you really want to think about your body cues. So for example, 
you want to really have some degree of mild to moderate hunger when you eat. It's normal, and it's actually good to have that. Uh, So let's say that you ate breakfast at 8 a.m., and you had a really nice, well-balanced breakfast. You really should be hungry again, meaning some emptiness or growling in your stomach, about five hours later. So if you've eaten a meal, a breakfast that you think is pretty healthy, and six or eight hours later, you're not hungry again, you're not experiencing any signs or symptoms of hunger, that breakfast was probably too big or too much. Even if it was very healthy, it might have been more than your body really needed or could use to fuel you for the immediate hours after breakfast. So it's kind of like putting gas in your car. You know, you never put gas in your car retroactively. You always put it in proactively, right? So if you're about to go on a trip, which obviously none of us are doing right now, but the analogy still holds, is you're going to put gas in for the miles to come. So when you eat, you're really fueling those immediate hours to come after that food has been digested and absorbed, and then it's used up. It's time to refuel. Same thing again, three to five hours apart. So if you ate, say, breakfast at eight, lunch at noon, a snack at three, dinner at six, that would be great timing. Now, if you prefer to eat smaller meals within that window, you'd have to reduce your portions, right? Some, that's, that's challenging for some people because let's say that you would normally have uh, a lunch meal at noon, but you would rather have a sort of a, a snack at 10 and, and another snack at, at 1. Then you have to take that lunch and break it up. And, and that can be hard for people to, to do in terms of not ending up overeating. So sometimes the more eating opportunities you have, let's say you eat six times a day versus four or three, you're more prone to overeat uh, every time you do eat. So what I find for a lot of people works really well is to figure out the meal balance that gives them what I call the Goldilocks effect, which is that not too little, not too much, just right feeling where you feel full, but not overly full or stuffed or sluggish. You feel satisfied by what you ate. So you no longer are thinking about food and you feel energized simultaneously. So that you have, you know, that sort of feeling like I could just, you know, I could just do, you know, go dancing or, or, you know, do cartwheels. You know, you have that feeling of like, wow, I feel really empowered by what I just ate. And then again, you should feel hungry again about three to five hours later. So that is a really good indicator of how well you're balancing your meals. And we can talk more about macro balance and sort of what to include when you're planning your meals and snacks. Uh, But that's a good indicator of, you know, your meal timing and frequency. You know, one of the things that I want to dig much deeper into is uh, two things. One, recognizing the signs of hunger, because so many of us are emotional eating right now. And if you've, if you've been doing that most of your life, and if that's a habit, it, you start to lose that sense of what actual hunger feels like. Um, and then if you can talk, also talk about the, is there a such thing as like a nutritional hunger? Meaning like sometimes like, a, uh, like with a lot of women that I, I've, I've worked with, like they'll feel tired and not realize that they're low on iron. And so sometimes the snacking can be from like a vitamin deficiency or, or, or mineral deficiency. Can you speak to both of those? Absolutely. First of all, I think it, I like to think of it as mind body, mind hunger versus body hunger. So in terms of differentiating between 
um, emotional eating and actual needing to nourishing your needing to nourish your body. The distinction there is it can be tricky, right? Because we're, we're practically taught from birth to eat emotionally or, you know, when I was a kid, certainly I was given, if I had a good report card, I was given food. If I was bullied at school or I came home, you know, I fell off my bike and scraped my knee. I was given food. We went to grandma's house to visit food. So I was really taught from a young age to use food to cope with emotions, whether they be celebratory or not so happy, um, emotions. I think we're all that our society really reinforces that, you know, we bring food to people when something bad happens, we bond over food, we share food with loved ones in a way that's very intimate. So it can be tricky to distinguish between using food for emotional needs versus true physiological needs. But what I would say is again, tuning into your body, physical hunger has physical signs and symptoms, whereas mind hunger does not. So if you're feeling like, let's say you just ate and an hour later, you're feeling hungry again, but you check in with your body and your stomach still feels full. You have no emptiness or gnawing. You have no sort of that low blood sugar feeling that we experience that's physiological, but you're just wanting food then you can check in with your feelings. And I'm not a psychologist. Um, you mentioned my degrees are in nutrition science and public health, but I did do, uh, as part of my master's in nutrition, I did do 21 credits in counseling psychology because I knew going into nutrition that while nutrition is a science and an area of medicine, it's very emotional, right? So there's really, uh, it's very hard to untangle food from feelings. So psychologists really say that there are four core emotions. There's anger, there's happiness, there's sadness, um, and fear. So if you can sort of say to yourself, okay, I'm not really feeling physically hungry. My body is not giving me any signs or indications that I need food. And I've, I've eaten recently. So where is this hunger really coming from? Is it fear? Obviously, a lot of us are having fear right now. Is it anger? I've certainly been angry about this whole situation. Um, you know, is it sadness? I've been sad about not being able to see my family and friends. So out of those three four core emotions, three of them are really perk perking up right now, right, for a lot of people. So if you know that or you have some indication that your hunger is really related to one of these feelings, then you can try to cope with that feeling in a way that does not involve eating. Maybe it's meditation, which I'd love to talk about because I'm a huge proponent of meditation. Maybe it is drawing or doing something creative. Maybe it is reaching out to someone through FaceTime or text or calling someone. Maybe it's spending time with a pet. Maybe it is getting outside if you can do that safely and being in nature a little bit. There are ways that you can, you know, sort of trial and error it because what works for one emotion might not work for another. What works for one person might not work for another. So, for example, for me, when I'm angry, I like to do something physical, cleaning, organizing my closet, you know, doing something where I'm actually keeping my hands busy and I'm actually moving my body. But when I'm sad, I like to snuggle with my cat or maybe even sometimes watch a sad movie that I know is going to make me cry to express or let out some of those feelings. And if you can kind of differentiate here, if this is not my body telling me that it needs nourishment and fuel and food and nutrients, 
it's really my mind, I can try to address that in a way that doesn't involve, you know, ice cream or chips or, you know, there are certain, certain foods that we tend to gravitate to, uh, towards for certain emotions. For, for example, with anger, people tend to want chewy, crunchy foods for sadness. People tend to want creamy comfort foods or even foods that they have associated from their childhood with being comforting. Um, so that you can identify that if you're keeping what I call a food and feelings journal. So instead of just a food journal where you're tracking what you're eating, you might not even be looking at it so much as what you're eating, but the whys behind your eating. How were you feeling? Did you have any body hunger signals? If not, what, what were thoughts were going through your head? Which of the four core emotions do you think you were experiencing? And then maybe writing down what you tried to do listen to music or, you know, again, do something artistic or creative. And you can figure out even on a scale from say zero to 10, how effective some of those alternative coping mechanisms are for you. So, you know, maybe for me, like music doesn't really do it for me that much. Like if, if I'm, if I'm really emotional and I listen to music, it doesn't really bring me out of that emotion. If I do something, um, you know, like let's say, I sometimes just need to laugh, you know, what, you know, you're a comedian, so you know better than anybody, but laughing is so therapeutic. So maybe I'll watch an episode of, you know, Arrested Development or some show that I know is going to make me laugh and it'll really help me sort of uh, decompress from that intensity of that emotion. So I sort of know I've figured out through trial and error what works better for me in certain circumstances. And it's a really amazing freeing process because once you can figure this out and you can start using these alternative coping mechanisms, your need to use food can go down greatly and that can impact your health, your weight, your quality of life um, in terms of having more energy, better sleep, better digestive health, a stronger immune system. So this is a very powerful and this is something that I work on with my private practice clients very intensely. When you talked about the the emotions, you talked about sadness and you talked about anger. Uh, sometimes I find that I eat because I'm happy, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like the excitement, yeah. like you get good news, you get excited. And I actually read somewhere that um, a number of car accidents are actually caused because of excitement. People receive mm-hmm. great news while they're driving and they they kind of lose focus and uh, and I found that um, uh, similar with when I when I want ice cream or cookies or want to grab for that, it's it's not always out of sadness or anger. It's sometimes it's out of uh, joy and happiness. And uh, do you do you have uh, antidotes for those? Sure. I in my experience, that's one of the easier ones to substitute because. You know, although I, I see that it can be common because, uh, you know, if we in the past have gotten a new job or a promotion, let's go out to eat, you know, or if you're hanging out, like, you know, if, if I'm hanging out with my, uh, you know, nieces or nephews, let's go get ice cream or, you know, in, in my, in my case, vegan ice cream, but, <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's that tendency to celebrate with food or, or enjoy happy memories and feelings around food. But most of us probably have a number of things you can rattle out right off the top of your head that you can do to express joy and happiness. Um, for me, one of my number one would be dancing. Uh, you know, for, I'm not a great dancer, but I lo- when I am dancing, I feel so joyful. I feel so free. Um, for some people, it might be singing, um, even if it's just you know singing in the shower, or singing in your own apartment or home. Uh, 
there are things I think that immediately come to mind for a lot of us of how we can express happiness. Um, you know, it, in, in, I think some of those other emotions are a bit more challenging to find alternatives because we're so used to just grabbing for food as your auto, you know, response. And you have to, you know, in fact, sometimes I talk about it, untangling it in a way that is very systematic, meaning you might not realize that you used food emotionally until after the fact. And then when you think back on your day, you might say, oh, you know what? I did eat those cookies because I was feeling sad. You don't really realize it in the moment, but you realize it after. Then the more awareness you have around that, and and that's where keeping the food and feelings journal is so helpful for raising that awareness, right? Then you might be realizing it as you're eating the cookies and it hits you, it dawns on you, oh, I'm eating these because I'm feeling sad. And you have a choice at that moment. You can, you know, stop and maybe try an alternative or you can go ahead and keep eating the cookies, but you now have a knowledge that you are doing it for that reason. And that's very important because then what will happen is as you start to reach for the cookies, you'll realize, oh, I'm reaching for these because I'm sad then you can try an alternative coping mechanism. So it kind of works its way backwards. One thing that I think is very important through all of this is to be very non-judgmental and 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 create a lot of self-love around this because the last thing that we want to do is beat ourselves up or berate ourselves for eating emotionally. A lot of my clients do that and they really struggle with it. They'll say, I shouldn't have done that. You know, why did I'm so gluttonous? Why did I do that? I can't believe I did that. And I'm, you know, I have no willpower that number one doesn't help at all. It only creates more negative emotions that actually make you want to eat more or drink or whatever other coping mechanism that may be less healthy. And it's not very, um, it doesn't really trigger a change in behavior. So you want to try to talk to yourself like you would talk to the person you love the most and respect the most. If your best friend or your significant other, a family member told you that they were doing this, you wouldn't sit there and shame them or berate them. You would say, hey, you know what? It's okay. Let's figure it out. Let's work on it. What, what, what can we do differently? If, if we could, you know, if this situation comes up again, what, what could we do differently? You'd be very gentle and very supportive and loving and caring around this behavior. And that's the way that we need to be for ourselves. Um, the other thing that you brought up earlier was nutrient deficiencies like iron. Those, I'm glad that you brought that up. Iron is actually a big one. I've written about this before, especially because I'm plant-based and it's, you know, what, iron is one of the nutrients of concern. Sometimes when people go plant-based, they really need to know what the plant sources of iron are and how to increase the absorption of plant iron, which is less absorbable than iron from animal foods. Um, so I experience, you know, a lot of clients who have low iron and actually you can have symptoms of low iron without having a true iron deficiency. Meaning if you got a blood test, it wouldn't show up in your blood as deficient yet you're experiencing the symptoms of it. And that's been established in the research. Um, and that, like you mentioned, fatigue is the biggest one and it's kind of fatigue, uh, beyond normal. Like, but you know, obviously if you haven't been getting enough sleep, which a lot of people are struggling with right now, you're going to experience some fatigue, but this would be fatigue. That's not really explained by lack of sleep. Um, not being able to walk upstairs without feeling a little out of breath or, you know, feeling fatigued in normal physical activity that shouldn't really make you that tired for your fitness level and your age and your health status. Um, 
So that doesn't really relate to hunger, though. So it's interesting. The research has not shown, and there, there have been published studies on that, that we crave certain foods based on nutrient deficiencies. That has not panned out. If that were true, <laughs> then most of us would be craving green vegetables and all this really, really healthy food because most people are falling short on nutrients like you know, we would crave beans and lentils. A lot of us aren't getting enough potassium, magnesium, you know, vitamin A, you know, the nutrients that are found in a wide variety of whole plant foods. Most people aren't craving those foods. Um, so the research did not prove that nutrient deficiencies tell you what your body needs. Um, however, it is important to differentiate again between true physiological hunger which really has more signs and symptoms in the gut, meaning stomach empty, feeling, growling, gnawing in the stomach, okay? You don't want your hunger to go beyond mild to moderate intensity to where you get shaky and your blood sugar drops too low and you feel dizzy or you can't think clearly. And at that point, you know, number one, it's dangerous because you could pass out, but also you're probably going to get be so hungry that you're going to eat very fast, eat the first thing that you see, eat a lot, um, so we don't ever want to get there, but feeling tired, that's not hunger, you know, feeling, um, having other physical signs and symptoms of nutrient deficiencies, like maybe skin issues or other issues, that's not hunger. So it's important to pay attention to your body overall and what kind of things you're experiencing and, and, and seeing in your body. Um, but that is a little bit different from hunger. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. And, and now I'd like to get into, um, you, you talked about meditation, which I actually just did before this podcast. Uh, and, and I've been practicing incorporating meditation throughout my day versus just at the start and the end of my day. And uh, it, I feel such a, 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 a big difference. I think it to me, it seems to go hand in hand with, uh, like you said, eating too much protein in one meal, like your body can only absorb so much. Uh, and meditation for me seems to be working better uh, in five to 10 minute increments throughout the day versus I used to do it for an hour in the morning, um, which, is, which is great. But I, I like the incremental breaks throughout the day. Can, can you talk to us about the type of meditation you do and how that relates to, to nutrition? Absolutely. I am with you, Leo. I sometimes will do a 20 minute meditation, but that's about the longest I can go. I have taken meditation classes that were an hour long. Uh, and I certainly can do that, but I'm with you that it is more effective for me to do maybe five minutes in the morning, maybe a couple of five minute sessions during the day and then five or 10 minutes at night, especially before I'm about to go to sleep. I find it to be more helpful for leveling my emotions. Um, I have practiced a couple different types of meditation. I've done Buddhist meditation where you're, you know, basically maybe reading something from a, a Buddhist teaching and then meditating on that thought. But I've also done quite a bit of mindfulness meditation, which is really interesting because quite a bit of research on it. In fact, UCLA has a whole center um, called Mark, which is around the science of how meditation changes our brains and our emotions. Um, I think mindfulness meditation is a bit of a mystery to people who haven't tried it because a lot of people think meditating is about 
not thinking about anything or trying to empty your mind. And that's not really what it is. Uh, it's really more being in the moment. My favorite thing about meditation is that when you are fully in the moment, in the here and now, you don't get sucked into thinking about the past and you don't get pulled into worrying about the future. And again, there's a lot of freedom in that. So mindfulness meditation, you can do you know, seated in a chair. You can do it sitting cross-legged. You can do it laying down. You can do it walking, walking meditation. You can really do it while you're doing the dishes. You could do it while you're taking a shower. It's really all about focusing on what you are experiencing in the now, meaning it could be the temperature of the water on your hands, your the sensation of your hands or the sponge touching the dish, you know, anything that you're doing. I have meditated while petting my cat and really just noticing the softness of her fur and feeling the vibrations of her purring. So mindfulness meditation is about tuning into your body, maybe following your breath, also tuning into your the temperature of the room, any aromas. Like I live uh, in the marina, so I can smell the salt, you know, the, the water from the marina and it smells just right now. It smells amazing. It smells, it's like sweet water. You know, it's like a, that ocean smell that is incredible when, you know, th- what you do when you're meditating is you're noticing little birds chirping outside the rustling of the wind. You know, maybe if you, if you have a fan on you, you can feel that, that air, you know, on your face. I mean, you're noticing everything that is happening right now. And it's things that we don't typically tune into. We're just completely tuned out of those things because we're in our heads and we're, you know, overthinking or ruminating on things. And that creates a lot of, uh, you know, um, increased hormones in the body, like cortisol, a stress hormone that creates, wreaks havoc with our health. So when we meditate, it's like taking a mini vacation from all of that. So it's not that you're not thinking, but you might be thinking about, uh, like right now, it's like 72 degrees outside, right here in LA. It feels awesome, you know? And, uh, you know, I'm experiencing that right now. Right now I'm sitting on my couch. I've got my cat next to me and I can feel her little paws are touching my leg and I'm experiencing that. And I'm really here talking to you and enjoying this conversation. And when we meditate in these ways, we actually can bring our heart rate down. You can really feel it. You bring, again, those levels of stress hormones down. And what research has shown is that even five minutes a day of meditation, the benefits can spill over into other areas of the day when you're not meditating. And it can cause you to be much more thoughtful and mindful about everything that you do, whether it's eating, again, tuning into your body. People who regularly meditate are more aware of body signals and can better differentiate between mind-body, mind-hunger and body-hunger. You feel actually more happy, more positivity. People who meditate regularly have tend to have a more positive, optimistic outlook on life versus negative outlook, which is amazing, right? That's a huge benefit. Um, people who meditate also have more... Um, empathy toward other people and nature and animals, which is also incredibly powerful. So meditation can improve sleep quality. Um, people are, are much more aware of, let's say, catching themselves before they say something it, that you might, you know, say, you know, something happens and you might be quick to respond 
um, in a way that you regret. But with people who regularly meditate, they're, they tend to take a pause and think a little bit before they react. So you become less spontaneously reactive to situations, which can create much better relationships with, especially right now, because, you know, whoever you're living with, if you're not living alone, you're kind of on top of each other all the time. And right now, I know a lot of people are talking about being in arguments and, you know, every little thing that their partner does bothers them or whatever, you know, so meditation can be a way to actually cope with this situation that we're in of having to stay home a lot and, you know, you know, missing our normal lives. So it is amazing. I I've been meditating for about 20 years now, and I will say it has changed my life. I will also say, I think it has really saved my life because, you know, it has gotten me through some really tough times when, uh, I, you know, I think if I didn't have meditation in my life, um, might not have handled situations in the same way that I did with meditation. Yeah. I've been meditating off and on for so long and and you're so right. Like it's, it's slowed down. It's, it's brought me from reacting to responding, uh, to situations and has bought me mental space, uh, so that I can have more clarity, uh, on situations that otherwise may have, as Abraham Lincoln said in his book, uh, unmanned me. Um, but, uh, uh, but so thank you for sharing that. You know, can we talk about, can we go back and talk about protein? Because you've mentioned a few times that you subscribe to more of a plant-based diet. And I was vegan for a few years, uh, for about three years, like heart, like I got rid of my wool coats, leather belts, like there was no animal, anything, no honey, all those things. And it, for, I guess my first question is, is there a difference between vegan and plant-based? And then second, can we talk about protein and what are the plant-based sources of protein? Because there's, once again, it goes back to the snacking thing where uh, there's so much information about what has protein and you find out it's not a complete protein and you need this with that. We were just in Peru and uh, they eat a lot of quinoa. And I didn't realize how protein dense, uh, I don't know if that's the right word, but quinoa is. So can we talk about those? Absolutely. So number one, you're right. There is a difference between vegan and plant-based. Veganism really is more of a lifestyle. And as you mentioned, veganism typically extends beyond the diet into not buying products that are tested on animals or made with animal ingredients or byproducts, um, wool, silk, leather, fur, etc. Veganism is a very largely ethical based. However, some people become vegan for environmental reasons or other reasons. Um, but animal rights, animal welfare are usually very large concerns in the vegan community. Plant-based, um, there's no formal definition of it. Uh, so it is sort of what you believe it is (laughs) in a lot of ways. There are some people who believe plant-based means eating only plants, And there are other people who believe it means eating mostly plants. So I work with some clients who will call themselves plant-based who do occasionally eat something like fish or eggs, for example, Uh, but 90% of their diet or more is plant-based. Or there are different ways that people can be mostly plant-based. Like, for example, I have a couple that I work with who they are plant-based 
100% plant-based at home, but if they go to a get-together, you know, dinner party, something like that, and uh, there are no plant-based options, they'll eat whatever is served, even if it's meat. So it's a very personal um, and and very fluid way of looking at eating, uh, whereas veganism is is more kind of all or nothing. In a, for a lot of people, you know, if you were vegan and you ate one egg one time, you can't call yourself vegan anymore, right? For a lot of people, whereas plant-based is a lot more um, flexible, and I think a lot of people like that because maybe they're not ready to commit to being 100% vegan, but they really want to eat a primarily plant-based diet and gain the benefits from that. And this is a new terminology that we're embracing. Um, plant-based also tends to be more focused on whole foods versus processed foods, whereas a vegan diet can be very junky. You know, there's vegan donuts and vegan pepperoni pizza and vegan ice cream and vegan cookies. And so I've worked with a lot of people who are vegan who really ate very few fruits and vegetables and whole grains and healthy foods. So that's another distinction is that plant-based tends to focus on whole, very unprocessed or minimally processed foods as well. And um, so it's interesting. I think you can certainly be vegan and be plant-based. You can be plant-based and be vegan, but really now it's all about um, figuring out what works for you, what feels right. So as far as protein goes, there's a lot of myths and misinformation out there about protein and plant-based or vegan diets. Uh, number one, you can meet all of your nutrient needs on an entirely plant-based diet. So it's uh, very possible to get all of the protein, all the vitamins, minerals, everything that you need without eating animals. We don't need to eat animals. We need to eat nutrients. And all of the nutrients that are found in animal-based foods can be found or sourced from plant-based alternatives. So that's number one. But you really do have to know what you're doing. Because a lot of people, if they, let's say, eliminate dairy and they don't know how to replace calcium or other nutrients that are typically found in dairy, yes, they can become deficient in those. Um, so you really have to know what are the plant sources of the foods that you are omitting, um, or their plant, you know, the, the nutrient sources of the, of the foods that you're getting rid of if you want to cut down or cut back on your animal consumption. As far as protein goes, you mentioned quinoa. Quinoa has about eight grams of protein per cup. So a cup is about the size of a baseball or a tennis ball. Um, lentils have about 16 grams of protein per cup. So for the same size portion, lentils pack twice as much protein as quinoa. So quinoa is not the highest uh, plant food out there that for protein, um, but it's, it's relatively high compared to other grains. Um, as far as complete versus incomplete, that's a myth. Every plant food on the planet contains all of the essential amino acids. It's just that some contain smaller amounts than others. So you really, the idea of complementing or having to combine foods, that is very outdated thinking. That uh, is not researched or science-based. Um, basically, when you consume a food, let's say like you know, black beans, Black beans have, again, all the amino acids, all the essential amino acids, but there are some types of amino acids that are lower in black beans that brown rice, say, has higher amounts of. So the old thinking was, well, you'd eat those two foods together so that you'd get a higher amount of all the amino acids in one meal. What our research shows us now is that our body does what we call amino acid pooling. So when we eat something like black beans, let's say at lunch, without the brown rice, we collect these amino acids and they get stored up in the liver. And then later in the day, let's say you had brown rice at dinner. 
then the amino acids from that meal would collect in the liver and they come together almost like pieces of a puzzle to form the uh, proteins that are needed in order to use the amino acids to build, repair, heal protein tissues in the body. So one of the most important things someone can do if they eat plant-based is to eat a wide variety of plant foods that are whole, nutrient-rich foods. Um, if you eat a very repetitive, narrow, plant-based diet, yeah, you, you may be missing some of those important amino acids that can interfere with protein utilization. So you really have to know what you're doing, and I highly recommend working with someone like a dietitian who's focused, you know, who has a specific focus in plant-based nutrition, or there are a couple really good books. There's one book I highly recommend. It's called Becoming Vegan. And again, even if someone didn't want to go 100% vegan, they still wanted to eat some animal protein sometime. This book really lays out kind of everything that you need to know about how to meet your nutrient needs. So if you can't work with a dietitian one-on-one, uh, for financial reasons or for whatever reasons, then get a really good book written by an expert, you know, not just an enthusiast who's, you know, vegan themselves, but maybe doesn't have the science background, but someone who really knows their stuff when it comes to the science behind this. I'll put a link to that book in the show notes, Becoming Vegan. Uh, and, and, you know, along that discussion, you know, the big topic when I was vegan was where do you get your B12 from? And, you know, so much I've read about is saying that, you know, we used to get it from the soil, but the soil has been uh, destroyed so much by, uh, you know, farming and industry that uh, animals aren't, aren't getting it and it's not in a plant source. So we have to, it's the only thing that we need to supplement. What's your feeling on B12? Do we need to supplement that or are we getting enough if we go plant-based? Yeah, now you're, you're right. There are some issues with that in terms of agriculture. Um, B12 is probably the the only nutrient that I kind of across the board recommend taking as a supplement. Um, however, it's important to note that a lot of people who are omnivores are B12 deficient. You know, so it's not just not eating plants or eating animals. It's there's there are other factors you know that that are involved. Um, but I will say that um, you know. There are foods like nutritional yeast and things like that that have B12, but it is a good idea to take a supplement if you're going to be 100% plant-based, especially long-term. Now, there are some people who do maybe like they try out being 100% plant-based for a month or for two weeks or a week or you know 10 days. Um, it's less of a concern in shorter periods of time like that, but for the longer term, it is a good idea to take a B12 supplement unless you're eating foods that you know are like at say on a daily basis that are fortified with B12. So let's say that the plant milk that you use in your smoothie every day has, you know, 50% of your B12 needs for the day. And, you know, you're getting that in one meal. And then in another meal, you're eating a, uh, you know, cereal or a bar or something like that that's also fortified with B12. You can potentially get it from fortified foods. But B12 is one of those nutrients where it's, you know, really not toxic in terms of, uh, you know, uh, there be, for every nutrient, we have a, what established what's called a tolerable upper limit intake, which is the most of that nutrient you should take from both food and supplements combined without potentially experiencing an adverse effect. So there are some nutrients that have an upper limit that you would say, okay, after this amount, you know, uh, let's say zinc or vitamin C or, you know, certain ones that if you go too high for too long, it can really start to have a negative uh, harmful effect on your body. B12 doesn't really have, um, uh, you know, it has a really high tolerance. So, you know, I would say it's totally fine to take a supplement, even if you're already also consuming 
um, B12 fortified foods or nutritional yeast. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And does it matter the source, whether it's liquid, pill? Not really. Uh, supplements, you know, solid supplements tend to be fairly well absorbed. But again, you'd have to look at if there are any underlying gut issues or other factors that may be impacting absorption in the gut. Um, so for a healthy person, though, no, a regular supplement should be fine. Uh, you know, speaking of the gut, uh, you know, I tried to eat lentils and there was a period where I, I, I remember eating them without a problem. And then, uh, recently I tried to eat them and, uh, it causes a lot of gas and bloating. And someone told me that part of it is I might not have enough good bacteria in my gut to digest it. And over time eating beans and lentils and things like that would build up that good bacteria so I can break it down. Uh, is that true or is, am I just intolerant to something in lentils? Uh, it's, I would say it's unlikely that you're intolerant. Um, it's probably likely that yes, your gut bacteria makeup does shift. It actually can shift within 24 hours of, of eating something. So you can start to build up, um, the, you know, the types and, and, um, the amounts of those types in the gut that are beneficial for digestion, but it's also about enzymes. Um, your body, it made, there may be a little bit of a lag time there in terms of your body being able to produce certain enzymes that it maybe wasn't needing, you know, as, as much. Um, so what we do know though, from the research, and I see this anecdotally all the time in my practice is that the more you eat beans, lentils, chickpeas, black eyed peas, things like that, um, the more frequently you eat them, especially if you eat them at least three times a week, uh, within about uh, two weeks to four weeks, it completely shifts your body's ability to digest them. So there was a study, I can't remember if it was Arizona State or University of Arizona, I want to say Arizona State, they did an eight-week study where they had people, they had a control group that added cooked carrots to their diet. And so that's a very easy to digest food that doesn't tend to cause gas or bloating. And then they had the experimental group that was asked to add beans. And what they found was that in the beginning of the study, um, about 40%, I believe it was, of the people that added beans experienced more gas and bloating. So it was actually less than they anticipated. About you know 60% of the people really didn't experience that, but some did. But every week of the study, the amount of gas and bloating reduced to the point where at the end of the study it was the same as the control carrot group. So over that eight weeks, their body completely adjusted to the point where those sign, you know, symptoms of gas and bloating went away. So we do know that, yeah, but the good thing about beans and lentils and, you know, pulses is the umbrella term for beans, lentils, peas, and chickpeas, just like whole grains would be the umbrella term for things like brown rice, quinoa, et cetera. So pulses, we don't use that word here in the United States that often, but um, these foods are refer referred to as pulses around the globe. They are incredibly beneficial for the gut because they contain fibers that feed the beneficial gut bacteria that are related to immunity and um, anti-inflammation and even positive mood. So when people eat more of these pulse foods, um, it can even translate into, you know, again, increased happiness. Um, and, uh, you know, a, 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 there's a connection between the gut and the brain. And so when people eat a higher fiber diet, and these are, you know, certainly the highest fiber foods on the planet, even above whole grains, nuts, et cetera, and, and vegetables and fruits, um, it really does transform this ecosystem that's living within our digestive system that is responsible for a lot of our wellness. 
So if you can um, feed your gut in a way that these good bacteria thrive off of, then you can really transform your overall health and your immune system. You know, speaking of, of overall health and immune system, you know, serotonin, uh, I read, is like 95% of it is uh, produced in the gut. Are there foods that, and, and for, for people who don't know, can you talk about what serotonin is and how are there foods that we can eat that can produce more of it? Yeah, so it's that feel-good chemical. It's that chemical that makes us feel you know, happy and, and relaxed and calm. And so, yeah, um, you know, <laughs> anything, anything that's really kind of a whole plant-based food is going to be beneficial for transforming the gut microbiome, we call it, you know, this, which is these trillions, trillions of, of microbes that live in our gut. And, uh, the, the, the gut microbiome is, largely related to serotonin production. So if you eat, I recommend eating about seven, if possible, it may be a little bit more challenging right now with, you know, our current coronavirus situation, but if possible, try to eat about seven servings of produce a day. I, I recommend five cups of vegetables and two cups of fruit a day from the raw state. So before cooking, if they're cooked, because something like spinach is going to shrink way down. So we're talking, you know, a cup before it's cooked. So if you can try to get in, say, a cup of vegetables at breakfast, maybe blend greens into a smoothie, two cups at lunch and two cups at dinner, which they can be raw or cooked, there's five right there. And then if you can fit in a serving of fruit at breakfast, maybe berries or banana or dates in that smoothie, and then another serving of fruit, maybe as part of your afternoon snack with nuts or seeds, that's two servings of fruit. So you can easily fit in seven servings of produce a day if you sort of planned, um, you know, how to build them into your meals. So again, one at breakfast, two at lunch, two at dinner for veggies, one at breakfast, one as part of a snack for fruit, and there's your seven. Um, and it can be frozen. Frozen vegetables uh, are great. Fro freezing does not diminish nutrients. It actually locks in nutrients. So when you buy a bag of spinach where the only ingredient is a spinach itself, that is just as good as having fresh spinach. In fact, it may be even better because sometimes when you buy fresh spinach, it's been sitting there, it's you know maybe been transported from wherever it was grown to the store, and in that time it loses nutrients, whereas freezing kind of locks them in. So frozen vegetables are awesome, and they're great right now for our current you know situation when maybe we have less access to fr fresh produce because maybe we're going to the store less often. Um, so start with that, and then definitely try to incorporate more of these pulses. They can be canned. Um, a lot of people are, you know, it's funny, Nielsen reported on the foods that people bought at the beginning of the coronavirus, what foods were people stocking up on. And oat milk was up there. It was like, I think it was number one in terms of shelf-stable foods. And um, beans were the other one. So a lot of people have been telling me, I have these bagged beans now, the dry, you know, I know how to open a can and rinse and drain the can, but when it comes to these bagged beans, I don't know what to do with them. Well, number one, their instructions are usually on the bag, but there's also tons of great resources online. But lentils are one of my favorites because lentils don't have to be soaked unlike beans. So lentils, you just cook them just as easily pretty much as pasta. They're very easy to cook. Um, so try to incorporate these foods, again, at least three times a week, if not more, if you can. They can be a replacement um, for meat, like I mentioned, a cup of lentils, 16 grams of protein, whereas three ounces of chicken breast has about 20 grams of protein. So it's pretty close. Now, if you combine those lentils with another source of fiber, let's say quinoa or brown rice, wild rice, um, nuts and seeds, then you can easily increase the protein a little bit more as well as the fiber. 
So something, let's say, like pumpkin seeds can have, for a quarter cup, which is about the size of a golf ball, can have uh, another, you know, let's say seven to eight, up to nine maybe grams of protein. So if you're getting a half or a cup of lentils and a quarter cup of pumpkin seeds, um, right there, now you're over the amount of protein that you would be getting in a three ounce chicken breast. And it's way more affordable, right? You can buy a can of beans for about a dollar and you can buy a bag of beans for like $2 and that's going to give you several servings. So right now I think, um, more people are eating beans, um, partly because they're readily available, they're shelf stable, they're affordable, but also you can cook them in a crock pot or, you know, there's a lot of things you can do with them and they're very, very versatile. You can actually blend beans into a smoothie, which it sounds gross, but it's really good because if you use white beans, white beans don't really have much of a strong flavor on their own. So they sort of blend right in just like, you know, adding avocado to a smoothie. It's not like you're putting guacamole in your smoothie that has onions and garlic and stuff in it. You're just putting a, you know, sort of a, um, ingredient in there that has a creamy texture, but that doesn't have a strong overpowering flavor and beans are the same way. So there's tons of ways that you can use them and that will not only increase your fiber and plant protein intake, but also minerals I mentioned earlier, like potassium and magnesium that a lot of us fall short on. Um, those are really important for our overall kind of mental health and sleep. Magnesium is definitely plays a role in mood and uh, kind of leveling energy and improving sleep quality. Um, potassium plays a role with uh, um, helping our heart function, but also keeping our blood pressure and our, um, um, uh, our electrolyte balance. So those are really important right now. Wow. I, I'm learning so much. I'm, I'm like, I'm blown away. I'm super excited of, of all the, the gems that you're dropping here. And, and uh, I, I feel all my neurons synapsing right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, have, I have two last questions. One is I have, I know so many people who are like taking these vitamin C, these emergencies, uh, powders for, uh, to get their vitamin C to prevent a cold. And, you know, I read somewhere that the, I think it's absorbic acid that they use as a substitute for vitamin C is not that good for you. And is vitamin C really the fighter of, of colds that we think it is? And then the second question uh, is me and Michelle, uh, we subscribe to the blood type diet. Most of the, what's, what's been the research that you found on the blood type diet in terms of eating for it? Like if you have an A or B or AB or O blood type. Okay. So let me tackle the vitamin C first. So definitely better to get your vitamin C from food. Okay. And as far as it preventing colds, whether it's, you know, bacterial or viral, there's not good research on that. Um, what the research does show is that having adequate levels of vitamin C in the blood is beneficial for immune function, but having higher than adequate levels does not boost immunity above, you know, normal levels or, uh, you know, prevent you from catching something that you may be exposed to. So the more, the better isn't the right philosophy, uh, when it comes to supplementation, it's very easy to reach saturation, meaning, um, you've reached the level of vitamin C, you know, vitamin C is water soluble. So we don't store it in the body. So after a certain amount that, that is the kind of maximum that our body can hold, we just excrete whatever's 
leftover surplus out in our urine. So when you take high dose supplements, you're just creating, you know, expensive urine and you're just kind of taxing your kidneys to have to eliminate that surplus. So the amount that you really need to hit that saturation point is only 200 milligrams a day. 200 milligrams a day is the amount, like let's say one red bell pepper has about 150 milligrams of vitamin C and an orange has about 70, let's say. The you know, amount in different types of citrus varies a little bit, but you can get uh, you know, half of the vitamin C that you need for a day easily in one food. So if you're eating a lot of um, things like broccoli, tomatoes, Brussels sprouts, kale, you know, there are a lot of vitamin C rich foods, um, you know, frozen strawberries, you know, there's tons of them that you can easily get additional benefit taking that supplement. So that's number one. Um, ter terms of the blood type diet, I do not recommend it. Uh, it's, number one, it was a, it was out, it's been out there for a really long time, but always in theory. The person who created it didn't really do any research to uh, show that, let's say, a, 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 you want, ideally want to do something like a placebo, you know, uh, I mean, not a placebo, um, a double-blind study where... Um, Let's, let's say with nutrition, it's a little bit tricky because with a supplement, if someone's taking a product, it's, it's hard, you know, it's easy to mask, like, is this really the placebo or is this really the supplement with a, with a diet? Obviously, I guess you're going to know which diet you're on. But, um, what I'm trying to say is you want to do a controlled study where let's say that you took two groups of people and you put one on one diet and another group on another diet, and maybe even had a third group on no specific diet. And you want to see, okay, over the course of you know, again, eight weeks or however long the period of time is, does, does one diet impact blood markers over another? Does it impact weight more? Does it impact the gut microbiome makeup more? Does it impact things like uh, um, markers for inflammation? Okay. When that diet was actually studied recently, actually, it was just within the past couple of years, there were no differences Okay, meaning following a type of diet based on your blood had no better outcome than any other type of diet. So there's no real evidence to back it up. Um, also, I am O negative. So according to that book, I would be eating a uh, very car carnivorous diet, and I'm entirely plant based, and I feel amazing. I mean, I have tons of energy. I've never had, you know, any like when I my cholesterol is amazing my iron status, you know, everything is fantastic in my blood work. So it doesn't really even hold true anecdotally. Um, what I feel when, whenever, whether it's blood type or whether it's paleo or no matter what the diet is, alkaline, there's so many of them out there. When people say, oh, I did this and I felt better. Usually it's because the diet made some sort of improvement over what they were doing before. So for example, you know, if changing your diet to the blood type diet or to paleo or alkaline or whatever caused you to eat less sugar, less processed foods, more whole foods, more plants, more fiber, you know, get more overall nutrients. Sure. You're going to feel better, but it's not really because of the diet itself, right? It's because of the nutrient shifts that you've made. So in my opinion, the best diet, and again, there's no one size fits all in my private practice. I do do food sensitivity testing, um, I feel that that's very valuable for helping people fine tune their diet, especially for reducing inflammation. Um, so I don't believe that there's a, a one size fits all diet, but as far as the research goes, 
the best research that we have is something called the blue zones, where they've looked at people, five areas of the world where people live the longest, healthiest lives. So in these populations, they have the highest percentage of people that live to be, you know, 90 to 100 years old, uh, sometimes more than 100 years old, without chronic disease. So they have high, long lifespans with very low rates of obesity, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, blood, high blood pressure. It's incredible when you look at these populations. And there are five different, very, very different parts of the world. One's in Costa Rica, one's here in Loma Linda, California. That's the only one that's in the United States. Um, you know, one's in uh, Italy, one's in Greece. When you look at these areas, Okinawa, Japan, these areas are very different in terms of um, the precise foods that people eat. But the pattern of eating is very similar. And it's a mostly plant-based diet. It's about 95% plant-based, but it's also unprocessed. So when these populations do consume sugar, it's in an all-natural uh, form, let's say maple syrup or honey or something like that. Um, it's not refined white processed sugar. Um, when they, or it might be dates or something like that. When these people, when you look at what these people eat, they eat again seven servings of produce a day. They eat whole grains versus refined processed grains. So the pattern is is really well established. And these these are areas of the world that have been very highly studied um, and followed and tracked. So I think that's ultimately the best. Um, another book I really like is called The Longevity Diet, and that is written by um, a professor at USC, um, Dr. Longo, who is really a true expert in longevity and anti-aging. And he talks, he actually is from one of these blues, he grew up in one of these blue zones, and he talks a lot about it in the book. But the Blue Zones has a fantastic website, uh, National Geographic is highly involved, in fact, they might even own it now, I'm not sure. Our Loma Linda University is also involved. So there's a lot of really well-established organizations that are involved with uh, collecting this data and sharing it in ways that are very consumer-friendly. They've got a lot of good recipes and resources on their website. Um, and again, the Longevity Diet by Dr. Longo from USC are, are great resources in terms of what I would consider to be the most optimal diet. And in the Longevity Diet book, he also talks about fasting. He has done quite a bit of research on fasting from uh, starting with yeast to animals to humans, and he's got quite a bit of human data at this point to identify the best ways to fast that are beneficial for longevity. So great resources out there. I'll have a link to the longevity diet in the show notes. Cynthia Sass, thank you so much for being on this episode. Is there anything, uh, any any uh, misinformation or myths or anything about diet and nutrition that you feel like people need to know, especially at a time like this that we have not covered? The only thing I will say, first of all, thank you so much, Leo, for having me on as a guest. I could talk to you forever. You're so pleasant and easy to talk to. So thank you uh, for letting me share some information and have this conversation with you. But the only thing I will say is be really, very mindful of who you're getting your information from. Okay. Uh, there are a lot of people that are very interested in nutrition that really don't have degrees and credentials in nutrition science. So they may be unknowingly passing on information that's not accurate. And, um, you know, that's not very helpful. So really try if you can to, uh, you know, um, source your information about nutrition from people that actually have the credentials in nutrition science. When I first started out about 20 years ago, 
in nutrition, it was more of a fringe area, just like meditation and yoga. It wasn't as mainstream as it is now. And because it is now so mainstream and there's such a high interest in it, there's so much information out there and it can be hard to sort out the accurate information from the not so good information. So really look for those credible sources. I have an Instagram account that I try to you know, add resources and information to, and I do write articles for healthmagazinehealth.com as well as another website called thehealthy.com. And I share a lot of those uh, links on my Instagram, um, which I don't know if you can link that, but I would, you know, would love to see some of your uh, listeners to, you know, on the page. And I'm happy to answer any questions or interact any way that I can with folks um, and try to help provide resources that can help us all get through this challenging time as healthfully as possible, both mentally and physically. We, we definitely will have a link to your website and your Instagram, uh, as well as both of the books uh, in the show notes. So if you, if you, if any of the listeners want to reach out, you definitely uh, just go to the show notes and click it and it'll take you directly there. Cynthia Sass, there's one question that I ask of all my guests because uh, I always feel like, there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to that person? Oh, boy, that's a heavy question. It actually brings some tears to my eyes. Um, life is precious. I, you know, I have had some very dark times in, in my life as well. And um, I have to say, I'm so grateful and thankful that I did not let myself go down that road, uh, any further because I have had those thoughts. And, um, in looking back, I, there were times where I felt, felt like it wasn't going to get better. There wasn't going to be a way out. You know, is this really worth living anymore? And I'm so grateful and so thankful that I was able to get through those times because looking back on it now, even just having this conversation with you and even having to answer this question, um, I feel like, uh, it's, it's, it's possible. It's possible to get through it. It's possible for things to get better. It's possible to heal. It's possible to connect with others and find resources that can help you. Um, it's worth it. You know, I think especially now more than ever when we're facing this pandemic, which none of us have ever encountered anything like this in our lifetimes. It's unimaginable. But yet I think it's brought a sense of the value of life to a lot of people and how just precious life is. And so, you know, I would say to that person, um, you know, just try, try to get through and try to hang on to some light and some hope and I think you can find others out there who have been in, in, that, in that same situation like I have and who will tell you that you are loved and that life is worth living and life is worth staying around for. No matter what, even in this pandemic, I'm happy to be alive. Cynthia says, thank you so much for sharing uh, all your information, all your resources. I, I feel like uh, like I'm about to I'm about to open up my fridge and, and toss out a couple things and, and also add some things. I'm excited. Uh, thank you, listeners, for listening in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for going to get help. For you going to a coach, going to a therapist, going to a counselor, going to a dietitian. Make sure make sure it's a certified licensed 
check the credentials uh, and, uh, and, and getting help. It's okay to ask for help. We all need it. Reach out. Your story needs to be heard. Call the 1-800 number if you need to. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly, and we will talk to you soon.